You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 399 of this podcast. Today is Saturday. May 28th, 2022, and it's been a few days. Uh, Actually, it's been three days since the last podcast episode was dropped, and I honestly have just not been quite in a position to record uh, yesterday or the day before. I spent yesterday outlining what will be today's episode, (coughs) and uh, so that's ready that's good. Uh, but besides that, uh, I'll just be honest with you. I'm thinking uh, very much about what the recap should be. What is the conclusion with regards to the past 100 episodes of this podcast? What does the podcast look like moving forward? What are recommendations that people have for the podcast? And also, what are some criticisms that aren't even necessarily uh, attached to something practical that can be done. Uh, you know, there's constructive criticism. That's one kind of criticism wherein the objective is to build up. You say, here's what I think is not quite correct. And here's what you can do to fix it practically if you want to. Right. But there's another kind of criticism that is not constructive. It is just, uh, nitpicky. And so you have to, when you get critical feedback, you have to distinguish between what is beneficial and what is someone just complaining. Uh, someone just saying, well, I, you know, it's not my cup of tea all the time. I don't always like this. You know, part of the risk and the reward in recording a podcast at all uh, that I'm not going to just, you know, keep for my own private consumption Uh, you know, record it and publish it to myself. And I'm the only one who ever listens to my podcast. Uh, You know, if I'm not going to do that, which um, for the record, not going to putting out there for other people to listen to and engage uh, what it is that I am putting out there where I want to talk about everything. It's just going to be the case that not everybody is going to love it all the time. There's just no two ways about it. Now, someone could say, for instance, Garrett, who wants to listen to you talk about everything? And to that, I would say, uh, not everybody is going to want to listen to me talking about everything, but that's not the point. The point is not, does everybody want to hear my particular thoughts or sentiments on every given topic that I want to discuss? That No, no, that's just not, that's not a realistic uh, criteria. Even if I were to pick a specific topic, for instance, you would still have to contend with that. Well, not everybody's interested in politics. Not everybody's interested in theology. Not everybody's interested in your wife and kids or what you do for work or fill in the blank, right? So the criteria for me is whether or not someone who would listen, who would be interested is going to be helped? Are they benefited by this? Is it beneficial to me? Is it profitable to me? 
is it profitable to them? And my conviction is that this podcast is, broadly speaking, on the whole, a beneficial thing to myself to record, and it's a beneficial thing for listeners to listen to. Now, that doesn't mean that everything I say is perfectly delivered or that I always have the right idea about the thing or, for that matter, that I always have the right attitude about the thing. But what else is new when you're dealing with people? Now, that's a big question. What do I do with the fact that sometimes there are imperfections that come through? That's another question. And is there a standardized approach when we're talking about, for instance, a podcast uh, or somebody just going about their daily life and having conversation with people, right? You know, whatever it is that you're going to say to somebody just in real life in a casual conversation at work or at a family get together or when you're meeting up with some friends for dinner, you know, that casual conversation is not going to be perfect either. You're going to say some things where you're just like, hmm, you know what? That's kind of silly. I just heard myself say that and wow, that's kind of weird. You know, you're going to have moments like that. You're also going to have moments where when you're talking with friends or family members, you're going to realize, maybe because they pointed out to you, that your attitude is not maybe the best about a given thing. You might have the facts and details right, but also you might not have the right attitude about the thing. So then what do you do, right? What do you do with that? Do you just stop talking with your family and friends and stop having conversations with people at work? Do you stop having conversations with people in your neighborhood? Do you just stop talking altogether and keep silent all the time? Well, I'll take a vow of silence except for short command phrases when a very, very practical, almost just guaranteed you know, acceptable, objective, near at hand, short term needs uh, coordination. You know, is that what we'll resign ourselves to? Uh, Of course not. Of course, we're not going to do that. And since we're not going to do that, i.e. you're not going to do that, listener, or at least I hope you won't, uh, neither am I going to do that with this podcast. I'm not going to say, Ah, well, there are things to work on, and therefore, I gave up. I'm just not going to do it. I'll be honest with you, though. One particular piece of criticism that I have to be careful internalizing over much is that not everything that I say on this podcast is true. Yeah, that one stung a bit. And it was uh, third hand, so then, too, you have to take into consideration, you might have misheard from the person who heard from the person who heard from the person. And I would say just generally speaking, my podcast from talking with people, you know, that I trust that I would put in my uh, close counsel, private counsel, you know, talking with them and asking, you know, is this something you would say my communication is marked by or you know, is this a is this a feature of my podcast or even just personal conversation? The response I've gotten is no, no, that's that's not the case. And actually, for that matter, too, you know, where we're potentially going to be having our children either 
listen or not listen, with rare exceptions where I'll say, you know, hey, like I'm talking about a given subject like uh, a while back, about a dozen episodes or so maybe. Uh, I talked about Target coming out with a new line of clothing for Pride Month, which is here coming up in a couple of days. And this new clothing line uh, includes transgender-affirming underwear items that are supposed to androgenize, very deliberately androgenize uh, men and women to where you really can't tell. You know, whatever they want to identify as, you, you won't have an easy time arguing with if they're uh, wearing these articles of clothing. And so I, I said in that episode, you know, hey, if some of you have kids and you don't necessarily want them to be hearing all of what I'm going to say on this subject, you know, I'm going to be discreet, but also too, you know, just fair warning when we're talking about chest binders and uh, packing underwear, you know, that might be something your kids don't need to hear or you would be offended to have them hear. Uh, so fair warning, right? But even there, right? Like I, I say that because I know that us being a homeschooling family, a big conservative homeschooling family, not every big conservative homeschooling family uh, is equally conservative about all things that could be potentially discussed or presented or what have you. As for my big conservative family, however, you know, I want my kids to talk appropriately about things and not just not talk about certain things. I want them to consider the context when they're saying what they're saying, why they're saying what they're saying, what in particular they're saying about the subject, and is it true, is it helpful, is it necessary? But I don't want them just completely avoiding certain topics because some people just don't think we should ever talk about those topics. I don't think that's so good. I think actually that could be potentially uh, very unhealthy because then where do you go with that, right? Like how far do you extend that tendency to just not talk about this thing because it makes me uncomfortable or it's upsetting, what have you? Well, if you can't talk about it, how are you going to make decisions about it? Or do you just reject out of hand that you would ever have to make a decision with regards to this thing? I don't think that we should aspire to be ostriches burying our heads in the sand and just being oblivious or ignorant about certain subjects or topics. But so also too, if we're not going to be that way, then part of our training up our children in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from the way they should go has to include having appropriate conversations about subjects which they should be able to talk about when they grow older. If they don't learn those habits when they're young, how are they going to have those habits when they get older? There's the question. Now, very, very concerned, very conservative parents might say, well, I'm just so worried that they're going to have bad habits. Okay, but are you thinking holistically about that? Are you thinking in terms of what is not said as much as you're thinking about what is said? You know, sometimes when I talk about veggie tales, I think I don't explain quite enough what bothers me about the whole VeggieTales thing. And I, I am bothered by VeggieTales because, for one, what we do is we take these biblical stories and we 
edit out when we present them in VeggieTales form, we edit out the parts that we think kids are just not prepared for. Well, part of the reason they're not prepared for these things is because we've edited all of it out. Well, that's not good. Then they get older, they become adults, and then they have all these questions about, oh, why is this in here? And why is this in here? And why is this in here? And I just, man, I don't know what to do with it. Part of why you don't know what to do with it is because it's been censored, more or less, for you, for your whole childhood on up to this point. You weren't trained up in the way that you should go with regards to making sense of these stories. And these stories are in here, not because we're supposed to obsess on them, not because we're supposed to emulate everything that we read about in the scriptures, but that's just it. That's the point. There are sinful, wicked assertions and behaviors in the biblical text, which are presented in narrative form, but they're not prescriptive. And we have to make sense of those things that show up in the biblical text because all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we come to the text and we say, well, I don't think I need to be completed here, and I don't think I need to be completed there, and I don't think I need to be completed on this other thing, where does it stop? And for that matter, are you actually dealing with uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind anymore? Once you have taken editorial liberties with the biblical text, where does it stop? You know, Thomas Jefferson, for one, he went through the Bible with a razor blade and he cut out all of the miracles. Everything supernatural, every miracle, and what was left was the moral teachings. And he liked the moral teachings. He thought the moral teachings were good. The philosophy was good. The life of the mind was good. And yet, the trouble is, Part of the life of the mind and part of the moral teaching has to do with what do you make of the fact that God is supernatural. He is superior to his creation. The creator is superior to his creation. Also, too, since he created the laws of the universe, natural laws, the laws of physics and chemistry, etc., etc., as well as the moral law. Insofar as this God is superior to those laws, when it says that he sometimes suspends those laws to demonstrate that he is still superior, he didn't cease to be, he's not getting tired, there is a moral and philosophical and spiritual component that we are just opting out of if we take a razor blade. Well, besides just the supernatural, that we might say is objectionable to us. There's also, quite frankly, to just be very, very blunt, the issue of the sex and violence. There is sex and violence in the biblical text. How it's presented is very important, and I think instructive, but the fact that it's presented at all, I think bears challenging those parents who say, I don't want my kids under any circumstances, to be exposed to this and this and this and this and this, however it's framed, 
however it's discussed, however it's talked about, by all means, if that's your conviction as a Christian parent, do what you think is best there with regards to your child, what is beneficial. But my challenge would be if it's a broad prohibition on certain topics being discussed or certain issues being addressed at all, but the scriptures speak to these things and therefore we should also contend with them and therefore also we need to have a mind about them. How far do you go? And at a certain point, do you just say, well, I don't want you guys to read these parts of the text. Or if you read these parts of the text, I'm not willing to talk with you about those parts of the text because they make me uncomfortable as well. We've got to be really, really careful about that. I, for one, take the view that I want to talk about these things with my children. Of course, you can't talk about everything all at the same time. Simultaneously, you have to prioritize, you have to focus, and you have to think about what is relevant in the moment. But again, when it comes to presenting stories from the biblical narrative, I have grave concerns, grave concerns, when we take biblical stories and we edit out certain parts before we present those stories to children. I think that's not good. I think that's dangerous. I think that creates an unreality. And actually, too, that leads into the main thing that we need to talk about in this episode, which is also uncomfortable and it's also concerning, but this is a part of reality and this is going to be a part of, I think, our reality for as long as we don't address it. So you don't like it? Well, let's do something about it. Let's make up our minds what is the correct response. So as many of you know, unless you have been in the wilderness and totally ignoring the news this week, on Tuesday, there was a mass shooting at a little public school in Uvalde, Texas. Uvalde, Texas is 80 miles west of downtown San Antonio, 54 miles east of the border with Mexico. Per Wikipedia, in 2020, Uvalde had 15,217 residents, of which 78.46% were Hispanic, 19.17% were white, less than 1% each of any other ethnicity besides Hispanic and white. Majority Hispanic community with about one-fifth being white. Fun fact, uh, Matthew McConaughey is from Uvalde, movie star, sometimes who talks about running for governor or some other political office. I'm not so sure that's the best idea, but there you have it. He's from Uvalde. So also the 32nd vice president of the United States, John Nance Garner, was from Uvalde. So also there was a guy named Tom O'Falliard. He was a friend of Billy the Kid. He was from Uvalde. Uh, I assign equal weight to the importance of all three. <laughs> it's like, okay, Matthew McConaughey is from Uvalde. Okay, that's nice. Lots of people are from Uvalde. At least 15,217. But on Tuesday, <clears throat> speaking seriously, there was an 18-year-old young man, very troubled, obviously, who I believe one report 
I read indicated had shot his grandmother before driving to the school and murdering 19 children and two adults at Robb Elementary School, one of the public schools in Uvalde. Some reports allege that the shooter was outside the school for 12 minutes before entering through an unlocked door, through a propped open door, after which he barricaded himself in a classroom full of children and commenced eventually to executing those children. 12 minutes, he was outside the school shooting, not shooting at anybody necessarily, so far as I know, but outside the school for 12 minutes. That seems like plenty enough time to have closed the door, certainly not to have propped open a door. Reports also allege that there was an officer at the school. There was a security officer, police officer at the school, assigned to the school, who did nothing to engage this active shooter. The Daily Wire reported on Thursday that the Texas Department of Public Safety confirmed that the shooter was not confronted by any law enforcement before he entered Robb Elementary School through an unlocked door. Amanda Prestigiacamo reports that parents gathering outside of the school urged law enforcement to enter the school to confront the shooter but were ignored. And allegedly, some were even handcuffed, tackled, thrown to the ground, pepper sprayed by authorities when they tried to go into the building or, as you can imagine, got very animated with law enforcement about how law enforcement was just uh, hanging back. According to reports from Not the Bee, Rob Elementary is a four-minute drive from the police station, but it took law enforcement 15 minutes to get there from when the call came in. By most reports, there was a 40-minute window where police stood down and did nothing to stop the shooter. That's a direct quote from Not the Bee's reporting on this. Not only did law enforcement not go in, they also reportedly, allegedly, used less than lethal measures like tasers to prevent parents from entering the school. So of course what you've got here is you've got a whole school full of children now trapped with this active shooter. And it's Texas for crying out loud. So you've got parents showing up who have firearms and even if they don't have firearms, they have a notion to go in and rescue their children. And law enforcement stopping them from going in is just unconscionable. If you don't have the balls to go in there, you who took an oath to serve and protect, get out of the way and let a mother and a father fulfill their God-given responsibility with regards to their children. But that didn't happen here. Now, I think the big question, as is always the case in incidents like this, is how did this happen? Why did this happen? My answer is, whether we're talking sins of omission or sins of commission, the active shooter or the cops who stood by for 40 minutes, the cause here was not firearms and it wasn't mental illness. This was caused by man's sinful nature run amok, plain and simple. I think also too, we should take a look at excessive reliance on government authority in this country, specifically over and against parental engagement. That also caused this. And I think that is also a sin issue. It's sinful 
how much we have given our children over to the government as if we're putting them up for adoption, we're sending them off to an orphanage for all intents and purposes, not fulfilling our responsibility as mothers and fathers to train them up in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. We let that go to the experts. We let that go to the governing authorities. And as I have said in recent episodes, there has to be a line somewhere past which you say, that's enough. I'm getting my kid out. But I don't think that there is a line for a lot of parents. And I think for too many other parents, they refused to make the first move because they were trained up in these same public schools, in the same public education system. They're deathly afraid of leaving the herd mentality, breaking free of the groupthink. They're deathly afraid of doing this before the people that they know do it. They don't want to be thought weird. They don't want to be rejected. That also is a major issue here. And I think it's a sin issue, quite frankly. The government, for its part, tells us it's okay to abort our children or, barring that, to send them off to godless daytime orphanages. And we give our consent and we're glad to be affirmed in whatever we want to do there. But if the government tells us we're not allowed to rescue our own children from mortal danger, from death at the hands of a evil active shooter, a mass murderer, here too will we meekly obey just because we've so long abdicated our responsibility? When is enough enough? You know, the, the Democrats will say this with regards to gun control. And I saw reports that a number of Republicans had decided that they weren't going to show up for an NRA convention. And Lee Greenwood, the guy who wrote and is famous for singing, God bless the USA, pulled out of uh, engagement that he had for his band to perform at an NRA event in Texas coming up. And increasingly, you have Republicans joining the Democrats in just accepting this blaming of the hardware. We're going to blame this firearm for having created this mass casualty event. Whether it's Uvalde, Texas, or wherever, it's not the firearm that took the lives of those children. A person was behind that gun that person has a mind of their own and they have a heart of their own and they have a soul. And that's where the focus should be. You know, there's an interesting little history here in this article from Not the Bee. Check out this thread on school shootings over the past 200 years and wonder where things went wrong. Revisionist History on Twitter tweeted out this thread. Bruh, I'm looking at the history of school shootings. Mind-blowing. Kids brought guns to school until the 70s. Only three school mass shootings between 1903 and 1966. Between 1903 and 1966. Only three. What happened? In parentheses, he says, school shootings didn't take off until the 1990s. And then his following tweet where he tweets back to himself or replies or continues on. Almost every school shooting from 1800 to 1960 was targeted at one person each. 
One guy shot his teacher in 1866 for bullying his brother and got acquitted. <laughs> Wild. School shootings simply didn't happen with any frequency until 1993. Now, an interesting thing about this, <clears throat> my dad tells me, because he went to public school, he was born in 1951, he tells me that he actually won a school-wide competition for marksmanship. Not only did they bring guns to school, but they had competitions. They had shooting competitions, just like any sport. Just like you might have a competition for who can hit the most home runs or shoot the most three-pointers or a wrestling competition or a track meet. That's what school shootings were like in his day. We're going to go to school and we're going to have a shooting competition at targets, not at each other. They didn't have metal detectors and all this worry that somebody was going to show up and go on a rampage. So what changed? Some will say what changed was the hardware. The hardware became more deadly, more efficient at taking lives. But I don't buy that. I don't buy that that's the reason. What changed first and foremost was what is in our heads, what is in our hearts, and what is in our souls. And the problem with pushing gun control in the wake of this school shooting is multiple. There are multiple problems with pushing gun control. And I mean this not just because I have firearms and I don't want somebody infringing on my rights. That's not all there is to it. The problem is at least twofold. One, that, and unapologetically that. You infringe on my right to own a firearm. And then what happens when it's my children that need defending? What if the police are just outside the building and doing crowd control and just hanging back? You're telling me I need to accept that we're going to push for stricter gun control measures. How far does that go? When is enough enough? What is it that the Democrats actually want? At the end of the day, they want only the government to own firearms. And they don't believe that the governed can be trusted with them. Well, in this case, you had a whole lot of guys with guns who had taken an oath to serve and protect outside of that school. And what were they using all of their show of force to accomplish? They were holding back parents who wanted to go in. But you're telling me I need to give up my firearms potentially if the Democrats have their way. I need to give up my firearms so that we can rely exclusively on law enforcement, on the government to protect our children. How does that work exactly? You don't get any more gun-free than a public school in this country unless you're in a place where the teachers are encouraged to carry, which one would imagine Texas would be such a place, but why weren't the teachers carrying and why weren't even the law enforcement officers who were carrying doing anything? You mean to tell me you guys were concerned about getting shot and so you just hanged back for 40 minutes, but I should give up my firearms. That's a problem. That's a real problem for me. But the other problem, the other really significant problem 
is that so long as we're looking in the wrong place, we're not actually dealing with the issue. The, the heart of the issue is not the hardware. The heart of the issue is the heart. Do you have a plan in place to deal with the heart issue here? Or actually, is that another way in which the government solution has directly contributed to this being the state of affairs? The government setting the tone for the people through the public education system directly contributes to this being the situation. The government setting the tone for the people when the governed don't take responsibility for their kids and the governing don't take their own oaths seriously and neither do we take our oaths seriously. As a people, we collectively don't take our oaths very seriously. That's what's at the heart here. When every school shooter that I read about either didn't have a father in the home or in their lives or their father was just completely hands-off, that tells me we have a major problem with oaths not being taken seriously. Either we have fathers who aren't taking an oath to begin with to the mother, have an intact marriage, and this is why we got married, by the way, have an intact marriage and an intact home and a healthy, balanced approach where the mother and the father are loving and nurturing and training up these children in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. You don't have school shootings like this. What's so special about the 90s? Riddle me that. Well, it's about 20 years from when abortion became legal. So you get a generation coming of age at a time when it's okay for us to just abort our children. Is it any wonder then, as that reaches a certain critical mass, 20 years on, 1993 is when revisionist history, masked three RMO on Twitter says school shootings really started in the modern era as we know them. 20 years exactly from when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. You want to do something about school shootings? Overturn Roe v. Wade. How's that first start? Yes, they are connected. How are they connected? Because both have to do with a disposable sentiment towards children. And what's the difference? You tell me, on the one hand, if 19 children a day are murdered in their mother's wombs in your area and it's legal, that's none of my business. But if 19 children are murdered in a public school classroom, we all need to surrender our rights. Our rights to keep and bear arms and our rights to free speech, our rights to free association, our right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure of our private property and our person. No. The heart issue here is what needs to be focused on. And for so long as <laughs> we're talking about taking guns away, making it harder to get guns, we're missing the point. It isn't about the gun. It's about the heart and what's being done to address the heart issue here. You take the guns away, which you won't even. You'll just take them away from law-abiding people. But the lawless will still have access to guns, which makes us even more at risk. It makes our children even more at risk because there's no deterrence 
you are actually putting fuel on the fire. So a couple of quick points here. One, it doesn't take a village to raise a child. Some, someone <laughs> who thinks that it takes a village to raise a child is less likely to be all in themselves on raising their own child. Plain and simple. It's just a fact. Mothers and fathers are the primary caregivers and caretakers of their children. That doesn't mean that you don't ever need help, but what help you accept from whom, in what circumstances, what help you deem is actually helpful, when and how and why and from whom, that is the mother and father's responsibility. It is not the government's responsibility first and foremost, because what is the government? It's just a whole bunch of other people. These are not their children. These are your children, mom and dad. When something is everyone's responsibility, that's near enough to saying that it's no one's responsibility. I talk about this in my book, and this is why we homeschool. If you're interested at all in hearing an argument, an extended argument on the case for home education, go check out my book, buy it, order it for somebody you care about who's thinking about homeschooling. But I make this point, I think, well, not that I'm necessarily perfectly objective about my own work, but I think I make the case fairly well. When you look at, in psychology, studies that have been done on the bystander effect and normalization of deviance, something being everybody's responsibility actually makes it near enough to nobody's responsibility. Individuality and individualism run amok, can cause problems, yes, but individual responsibility is absolutely essential to the home, the business, the church, the community, society, a nation, functioning. When you lose individual responsibility, people believing that they have a personal stake and that they will be held to account by their maker and by their neighbor for how they engage with their responsibilities, that makes all the difference in the world. Mothers and fathers are the primary caregivers and caretakers of their children, period. And they need to act like it. They need to think like it. They need to talk like it. But if you wait until an incident like this tragedy in Uvald to realize that your children are your responsibility first and foremost, and nobody else really can be fully trusted, not fully, let's be honest, you've waited too long and it's already too late. It's too late when you get the call or the text that there's been an incident or there's an active shooter at your school. That's already too late. The bystander effect needs to be considered here, not just with regards to active shooter situations, but with regards to character formation. Character formation is the most important part of education. And yet, what kind of character are our public schools encouraging children to have? That is what is at the heart here. Our public schools are training up our children in the way that they should not go. And when they're older, they don't depart from it. Now you mix that with firearms, that's dangerous. Yeah. But the solution should not be, well, okay, well, we'll just get rid of all the firearms. No. Get rid of you corrupting children by teaching them that they're just animals and that life has no purpose and that there is no God. 
the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. There's no wisdom in that. And also, there's no decency. People are awful to one another, whether they're abusive or they're negligent for years and years and years and years and years and years. And people are not inherently good. So absent a gracious, loving God, redeeming us, rescuing us, sanctifying us, enabling us to love one another because he first loved us. Absent that, people just get worse and worse and worse. And at a certain point, the dog-eat-dog mentality that our public schools run on pushes more and more kids to say, that's it. I've had enough. My life has no purpose. I'm tired of it. I'm going to settle the score, and then I'm going to call it a day. I'm going to go out. Suicide by cop. And I'm going to take as many people with me as I can because I'm angry with that person, that person, that person, that person. And I just want to make other people feel as miserable as I feel before I go. It's all about power. It's all about selfishness and evil and sin. So you want to deal with it. Don't deal with the firearm first and foremost. It's not a hardware issue first and foremost. This is a spiritual condition first and foremost. Y'all need Jesus. That's what you need. You don't need gun control first and foremost. Y'all need Jesus. Because if you have Jesus, well, then the scriptures say that the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, self-control. You want gun control? I'm reminded of a scene from Black Hawk Down, which is yet another sterling example of why you shouldn't trust the government over much. But there's these special forces operators who are in the chow hall getting some food, and this grouchy sergeant or whatever asks them why they don't have their safety on. And one of the special forces operators, played by Eric Bana, holds up his trigger finger and just kind of makes a motion with it in the air. He's like, this is my safety, Sarge. And it's funny, but it's also true. I, I almost feel like we've got to sing that song. The finger bone's connected to the hand bone. The hand bone connected to the arm bone. You know, and, and go all the way back until you get to the part where we're dealing with the brains of the operation and the heart of the issue, which is what is in our minds that this has become so much more commonplace. You know, it's funny to me <clears throat> when statistics work in the favor of the left or they can be presented, they don't actually on closer examination. And once you realize how many faulty assumptions are baked in the computer models that project out global warming, sea levels rising, temperature changes, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a whole nother topic for another day. But when the statistics indicate even just the most marginal, the most tiny little change in temperature over the past century, we all need to give our wealth, our power, our authority, our liberties to the left to run our lives to save us from global warming. But when the statistics start to show very, very disturbing trends with regards to, let's say, mental health, in our public schools or among our children, suicide rates among teens, substance abuse trends, school shootings. Oh, no, no, no. Let's trot out some rep for the teachers union to give us talking points about what heroes teachers are so that you cannot criticize public education. No. 
This is what happens when collectivism is embraced and breaks down. And the frustrating thing is there is no point at which the collectivists who are just diehard all in for collectivism will admit that their collectivism is what caused this. They'll look at this tragedy and say, ah, we don't have enough government control. When they say gun control, what you should actually hear is government control. We need more government control. Ah, parents aren't taking enough responsibility for their children, and so the government needs to take more control over children. That's the solution. No, no. The solution here is more parents fully engaged in the upbringing of their children and encouraging one another to train up their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's the solution, not more reliance on the government monopoly in childhood education, less reliance, not more reliance on law enforcement to be responsive quickly and to do their job. You know, funny story there too. I'm good friends with a cop here in Greeley who I love dearly. In fact, it was my friend, the cop, and his wife and their family that watched seven out of eight of our children, 87.5% of our children, (laughs) speaking of statistics. Somehow it's funnier when you throw out a percentage of children because you have so many children. We took 12.5%, if you're wondering. Uh, of our children with us. That is Andrew. We have eight when we went to uh, Idaho Springs Monday, Tuesday this week. But, you know, my friend, the cop, I have no worries at all about his commitment to doing his duty and fulfilling his oath. But you look at a situation like this and the stark reality is that you can't expect that every time you call 911, as one girl just absolutely heartbreakingly is said to have done over and over and over and over again in the school while authorities stayed outside and did crowd control. You can't expect that every time you call 911, for one, that law enforcement is going to show up in a timely manner. For two, that when they show up, they're going to respond as is needed So the solution here is not increasing reliance on the welfare system and social services and law enforcement. The solution here is to figure out why are we so reliant on the government? Is it not because we've abdicated? This is why we homeschool, ladies and gents. This is why we homeschool. You know, governing authority is God-given. It's a good thing that there would be government. I am not an anarchist. I believe in having governing authority in every sphere, whether it's the home, whether it's the church, whether it's civil society, there should be governing authority. We need it, and it's a blessing when it abides by what Paul the Apostle talks about in Romans 13. Namely, what is the governing authority instituted by God to do? Two things. One, to reward those who do good. Two, to punish those who do evil. Reward those who do good. Punish those who do evil. Human flourishing, civilization, life in society crumbles when government either refuses to do both parts of that role, that responsibility, 
or else does the opposite. Reward those who do evil and punish those who do good. And that is also, too, why I have no confidence in calls for increasing gun control because I look at the people who are calling for gun control the hardest and the strongest and the loudest and the longest. And they're the same people who are threatening Supreme Court justices with violence if they overturn Roe v. Wade. They're the same people who are insisting that they need to be able to talk with my five, six, seven, eight-year-old about changing genders and experimenting sexually and how love is love. No, I don't trust you. No, I don't trust you. Nor can I. Nor would it be either wise or defensible before my maker for me to trust you. Mm Mm-mm. No. Continuing on with this piece at Not The Bee about this thread from Twitter, Revisionist History says something went wrong for kids post-1975, born post-1975, and it got significantly worse for kids born 1996 to 2001. The early 1900s saw explosions and bombs, but there were no mass shootings. There was only one school shooting in the 1800s, 1898, in Charleston. Six died. Zero from then until 1940, when a high school principal shot five of his colleagues. Five died. 1966, at the University of Texas, Rosemar College, 18-5. No school shooting until 1984. This is new phenomenon. School shooting defined as three or more dead. There were many instances of one or two people being shot, 1800 to 1970. Revenge, not mostly random. Even that was rare. There was an elementary school shooting, five kids in the 70s. No one died. Don't tell me further isolating already mentally fragile kids for two years didn't have consequences. This suggests increases are due to isolation and mental issues. Opioids and suicides were already exploding pre-2020. Active shooter incidents per year, 2017, 31. 2018, 30. 2019, 30. 2020, 40. 2021, 61. There was a 52.5% increase, 2020 to 2021. A 33% increase, 2019 to 2020. One psychologist, according to Brad Wilcox, who studied 56 school shooters, found that 82% of the sample either grew up in dysfunctional families or without their parents together for at least part of their lives. So the point of it, the point of all this is marriage is very, very important. It is a matter of life and death. How we parent our children, how we train our children, how we educate our children is a matter of life and death. This is why we homeschool. This is why we got married. I'm working on my book on marriage Right now, I'm working on my marriage and my parenting right now. I would encourage you to do likewise. By God's grace, we have the oracles of life in God's word. And we have to be discussing what's in God's word with our children at all times. When we rise up, when we sit down, when we're working, when we're playing, we have to be going back to God's word as the standard of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And we have to be thinking about life in a purposeful way, not in a selfish, self-indulgent, materialistic only, sensual way. No, but in a God-fearing way. You can enjoy good things that God has made and 
steward them well. By God's grace, if you are conducting the business of your home according to his word, by his grace, loving your wife, for instance, the same way that Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her, not frustrating your children, that's an important one as well, fathers. You're supposed to be training your children. You're supposed to be disciplining them. Also, you're supposed to be not frustrating them. Don't provoke them to wrath, God's word says. So if you're doing things just to be annoying to them or just to assert dominance over them, are you loving them well? Are you honoring your maker when he says to not provoke your children to wrath unnecessarily? Are you watching? Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to whether you're needlessly creating frustrated children, either because of what you're actively doing or what you're refusing to do? That's an important question that ought to be leveled at every father of every one of these school shooters. But rather than reactively, we ought to be asking these questions proactively. Not, when are we finally going to pass comprehensive gun control and confiscate everybody's firearms? No, 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 no. When are we finally going to insist that fathers and husbands and mothers and wives are essential, non-negotiable, essential to the health and well-being and raising of children? When are we going to insist on that? You get that squared away and you won't have these school shootings. You homeschool your kids, kids that you had in the context of marriage, who you brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, loving them well, not just disciplining them, but loving them well, nurturing them well, encouraging them, not frustrating them, not aggravating them unnecessarily. You get that squared away, we won't have school shootings. Well, we'll have the opposite of school shootings. We will have a blessed society marked by life and love and gladness and joy and thanksgiving and peace. Peace with God is the prerequisite. We get that through his son. And by God's grace, I'm glad that my kids are homeschooled. I'm glad for my wife who is homeschooling them. I'm glad that we know a great many other families who are also homeschooling. I realize I take the risk that parents who are sending their kids to public schools are going to listen and they're going to say, well, it feels kind of like you're suggesting that we're in the wrong to send our kids to public schools. And to that, I would say, I think you are. I believe you are. Change my mind. Or buy my book. And this is why we homeschool. (laughs) And homeschool your kids. You could do that too. Not saying it's easy, but boy, howdy. What are the alternatives? Are those easy? I can't imagine. I can't imagine being one of these parents and being told to wait outside the school. I just can't. I can't. Makes me sick to my stomach. I can't. Can't imagine it. That that seems immeasurably harder to me. I can't imagine any of my kids growing up and getting into drugs and alcohol, substance abuse. I can't. I can't imagine them growing up and just leaving the faith and not being Christians and not knowing God because they were trained up in the way that they shouldn't go. And when they were older, they didn't depart from it. That seems to me immeasurably harder. But I got to leave it there. It's a Saturday morning. Time to jump into a book that I picked up 
yesterday on the recommendation of a coworker of mine. He wants to hear my thoughts on it. Well, I'm going to have to have some thoughts on it, but I'm going to have to have informed thoughts by reading the book. Michael Lewis, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. Very interesting so far. I am just starting chapter seven. Should have that finished up today. I would love to do a review of it tomorrow, but tomorrow, if I, Lord willing, record another podcast, we'll be at episode 400. So we're going to do a recap of the high points and the low points, what was learned over the past hundred episodes. The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined podcast is not worth continuing to record. So we're going to learn what we can and grow. And that'll be fun. That'll be exciting. Tune in for that. If you haven't necessarily caught the past hundred episodes, you might be interested to hear some reflections and some thoughts. Or if you have, maybe <laughs> maybe if you have listened to the past hundred, you'd be interested in a recap. Either way, if you don't already subscribe to this podcast, please do hit the subscribe button, leave a review, and feel free to comment as well. Send me a message. Here's a challenge, but more than a challenge, a request. If you hear me saying something on this podcast that you think is not true objectively, if I'm either misspeaking, speaking out of turn, saying something that might be... uh, potentially misleading, what have you, dangerously so, by all means, email me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. I think also proton.me is about to be a functioning option, but in any event, you can reach me lots of different ways. Garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com is one of them. And if you would, let me know if you have any comments questions, objections, concerns, complaints, and I'll be happy to consider your case. And uh, if I've spoken amiss, it wouldn't be the first time, but I would rather know about it and be able to address it, correct it if I'm wrong, or defend myself if I'm right, which of course, of course I'll think I'm right. But uh, by all means, let me know because I'm not always right and I want to be right. And one of the ways that you become more right is by admitting when you're wrong, if you, in fact, are wrong. So do me that kindness. I'll leave it there, though. That's all the time I got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.